Salutations, my name is Noel Joshua Hadley. This is the Unexpected Cosmology. Do me a favor, like this video and subscribe if you haven't already, you know the drill. Starting out, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon subscribers. You guys help keep this ministry afloat. There is a link below this video by which you too can subscribe to Patreon, become a supporter of this channel. A simple $5 a month gives you full access to the website, all the articles, all the papers that I turn out. Now, as you guys know, I am a writer. I greatly enjoy the writing process. And a lot of people, they, they will write to me and they'll say, Noel, I'm a big fan of your work, of your research. I just wish you made more flashy videos, you know, special effects, you know, voiceovers and video clips and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I get it. In, in those regards, my videos that I make are not for everybody. There's a very specific reason why I do what I do. One of those reasons is that I still believe that reading is the best way to digest information, still to this day. And so when I make these videos, I'm essentially just reading my own papers, which you can get on my website, and you have the opportunity to listen or to read along. Well, this is a part of a presentation I gave a couple years ago now. I'm not really sure how long ago. This is called 500 Years of the Phoenix. You can see it right there. And I have added a lot of new information to this iteration of it. In fact, this week, I'm going through the life of Nero. Just yesterday, I, I dropped the video where I was presenting uh, first century evidence that Christians believed Nero, even though he died, that he was going to be coming back again. And y'all willing, I will again present yet another video to you tomorrow on the subject of Nero. Anyways, let's get right into this. 500 Years of the Phoenix. Hold on. First, let me uh, let me tie my hair back. It's kind of hot in here. Okay, well, here we go. Discovering the role of the Phoenix in the 7,000-year timeline deception came by total accident. I was just sitting around by the poolside, skimming through the pages of the Apostolic Fathers, sipping on some iced tea or something, minding my own business, you know, you know the drill, when I happened upon a passing mention of the bird. Seriously, why doesn't anyone tell me this stuff? It's like everyone expects me to dig through the annals of his story and excavate for myself. It was Clement of Rome who let me in on the news, and here is what he has to say on it. Let us consider, beloved, how the Master shows to us continually the resurrection that is about to be, of which he hath made our Adonai, Yehusha HaMashiach, the first fruit, having raised him from the dead. Let us look, beloved, at the resurrection that is ever taking place, day and night. Show to us the resurrection. The night is lulled to rest. The day arises. The day departs. The night cometh on. Let us consider the fruits, in what way a grain of corn is sown. The sower goeth forth and cast it into the ground, and when the seeds are cast into the ground, they that fell to the ground dry and naked are dissolved. Then after their dissolution, the mighty power of the providence of the Adonai raises them up, and from one seed many grow up and bring forth fruits. This is First Clement chapter 24. Pause. The passage I showed you says nothing about the phoenix. What gives? Hold your horses. We're getting to it. One thing at a time. Rome wasn't built in a day, you know. It, it would. 
<laughs> it probably wasn't even destroyed in a day, but you never really know I wasn't there. Speaking of which, only the untrained eye will fail to recognize what just went down. The timing of the resurrection, according to Clement, was quote-unquote about to be, rather than hundreds if not thousands of years into the future. That's a given by this point. The immediate return of Yahushua HaMashiach occurred in 70 AD, which was furthermore established in my glorious appearing doctoral thesis, some of which we read from yesterday for my Nero presentation. In the same paper, I demonstrated to my own satisfaction why Clement was a contemporary of the temple generation, writing his letters before the temple was destroyed and not decades afterwards. But then notice what else is going on. Blink and you'll miss it. We are given two examples of the resurrection as a cyclical event. No, it's not simply a one-time affair. Day and night, day and night, day and night, rinse and repeat. The rising and the setting of the sun showcases the reality of the ever-continuous resurrection reset. The other example he offers has to do with the sower and the seed, planting season and harvest. The mystery religions utilize the same parables, though it's not like the Torah didn't institute holy days, which lined up with the farmer's calendar. If you're not a friend of metaphors and need this spilled out for you, the sun in relation to the seeds, that is, then Clement doesn't disappoint. He writes, the mighty power of the providence of the Adonai raises them up. The number one question on everybody's mind, or in the very least, the inquiry which has landed in my lap more than any other over the course of my entire writing career, is how long the fig tree generation of Matithyahu 24 would have to wait before the kingdom of Mashiach was ushered in. 500 years after the resurrection of Yahusha is my best guess. Now, let me explain here. As far as I'm concerned, Yahusha HaMashiach is king, high priest, and when he was born and the star was shown over Bethlehem, it was a declaration of the king and his kingdom. And the kingdom was within. The kingdom existed then. Okay, The kingdom hasn't gone away now. When I'm talking about the 500 years, I'm talking about when the kingdom was physically ushered into this earth. And I know that goes against a lot of people's research. This is my personal thesis, and I'm finding a lot of information to back it up. At first, it was simply a hunch, which in turn quickly became a thesis. My proposal has frustrated the large swath of preterist Tartarian hybrids who insist the kingdom was brought to fruition as a physical and recognizable entity in the whereabouts of 70 AD. And of course, I've seen different years in there. I didn't give up, though, despite the peer pressure to surrender to the typical seminary talking points. Some of you may be happy to know that the evidence which I pulled only continues to impress. Well, here is the part of Clement's letter which involves the phoenix. Let us consider the wonderful sign that happens in the region of the East, even about Arabia. There is a bird which is called the phoenix, this being the only one of its kind, lives for 500 years, and when the time of its death draws near, it makes for itself a nest of frankincense and myrrh, and the other perfumes into which, when, it, when its time is fulfilled, it enters and then dies. 
But as its flesh rots, a certain worm is produced, which being nourished by the moisture of the dead animal puts forth feathers. Then when it hath become strong, it taketh the nest wherein are the bones of its ancestor and bearing them, it flies from the region of Arabia to that of Egypt, to the city which is called Heliopolis. There in daytime, in the sight of all, it flies up and places them upon the altar of the sun, and having done so, returns back. The priests, therefore, look into the registers of the times and find that it has come at the completion of the 500th year, First Clement chapter 25. Clement did it. He actually did it. I nearly fell out of my chair when reading about the phoenix being an example, but also a sign of the impending resurrection events which may have been dangerous seeing as how I was seated near the edge of a pool on the no-dive sign. The Greeks and the Egyptians claimed the phoenix lived for 500 years. Just before its life expired, the phoenix would build a nest and then set itself on fire. Then a new phoenix would rise from the ashes of the old. You will notice that Clement did not write off the bird as a fairy tale for children. No, the phoenix was a quote-unquote wonderful sign that happened in the regions of the east, namely Arabia. Also, the fact that only one phoenix lived at a time, each in succession to the other, is undoubtedly important to the reset narrative. Its arrival heralded another intricate part of the timepiece, probably in partnership with the zodiac, seeing as how the sun plays a part. And it appears as though the elite all knew about it. According to Clement, a newly risen phoenix would be cause for the priest to, quote, Look into the registers of the times and find that it has come at the completion of the 500th year. If this is true, then we can easily deduce, knowing how 5,500 years had passed from Adam to Yahusha, that a possible 11 phoenixes had already come and gone, if the 500-year event is deemed consistent, leaving only one more before the big event. So how many years after Clement's letter are we looking at then? That would depend, of course, upon when the last phoenix had been spotted. Will you be happy to know that I discovered when that was? The person who tells us is Tacitus. Tacitus lived from 56 through 120 AD and is widely regarded as one of the greatest Roman historians by the modern scholars. Well, here's what he says. In the consulate of Paulus Fabius and Lucius Vitilius, after a long period of ages, the bird known as the phoenix visited Egypt and supplied the learned of that country and of Greece with the material for long disqu uh, disquisitions on the miracle. I propose to state the points on which they coincide, together with the larger number that are dubious, yet not too absurd for notice, that the creature is sacred to the sun and distinguished from other birds by its head and the variegation of its plumage, is agreed by those who have depicted its form. As to its term of years, the tradition varies. The generally received number is 500, but there are some who assert that its visits fall as intervals of four, uh, 1,461 years, and that it was in the reigns first of Sisosis, then of Amasis, and finally of Ptolemy, third of the Macedonian dynasty, that the three earlier phoenixes flew to the city called Heliopolis with a great escort of common birds amazed at the novelty of their appearance. But while antiquity is obscure, between Ptolemy and Tiberius, there were less than 250 years. 
Did you get that, Tiberius? Well, we'll discuss in a second. Whence the belief has been held that this was a spurious phoenix, not originating on the soil of Arabia and following none of the practices affirmed by ancient tradition. This comes from Annals 6.8. Hold on, I need a drink. Where was I? Though Tacitus confesses antiquity is obscure on the arrival of the phoenix, he confirms that the bird arrived in Heliopolis for the reigns of Sesosis and Amasis, if I'm pronouncing those names right, uh, Ptolemy, and then Tiberius. Recall your history. Ptolemy was the successor of Alexander the Great, founder of the Ptolemaic Empire, and ruled as pharaoh of Egypt until his death in 282. But then we have Caesar Tiberius. He ruled from 14 to 37 AD, who was crucified under his reign by Yehusha HaMashiach. That's when the last Phoenix event happened, according to Tacitus. And what transpired at the crucifixion again? I have already shown you in other places. Yehusha entered Sheol and freed the Ruachoth of dead Nefesh. That'd be the spirits of dead souls. The resurrection is what happened. It just so happens that Tacitus was troubled by the Tiberius Phoenix event. He says it was spurious and not a part of the expected schedule, causing many to speculate that it wasn't official. But we know better. I have also shown you in various places that Yahusha's entire ministry was an intel operation, known only among top brass in the highest heaven. So not even the angels or the spirits in the lower tires of heaven uh, knew what was going on. Not even Hasatan was aware of who Mashiach was when he personally escorted him down to Sheol. The spiritual elite believed they still had another 300 years, but no. The phoenix swooped in as a sneak attack and the patriarchs were rescued from the underworld. Clement could not have been writing to his Corinth audience under the reign of Tiberius because he did not take over as bishop of Rome until after Kepha's crucifixion by Nero in the circus. I am not assuming either. I addressed the decade of Clement's ministry in my glorious appearing paper. Tiberius was already long gone by then, and so Clement could not have very well been pointing to that one as the only resurrection event. No, he was gazing forward to another. The next Phoenix Reset event, which we need to keep an eye out for, happens long after the 70 AD destruction of the temple, anywhere from 250 to 500 years. And guess what? I found it. It derives from the Sibylline oracles, though much like the Clement passage, its context needs to be established. Thrice five, enslaving the world from the east and to the west, there shall be then a lord gray-headed, having name of the near sea, the world inspecting with a nimble foot, bringing gifts of gold and plundering hateful silver even more, and stripping it off, he shall pick it up, and he shall have part in all mysteries of Magian shrines, display his child as God, abolish all things sacred, and disclose the ancient mysteries of deceit to all. Now that comes from the Sibling Oracles, Book 8, and you can see 56 through 75, the lines. The king who is being referred to is Emperor Hadrian. He is the man from the West, having, having been born in Spain. The biggest tip-off, however, is the sea which the oracle claims he was named after. That would be the Adriatic Sea, a body of water separating Italia from the Balkan Peninsula. 
Though the biggest tip off of all is the adopted child whom he plays dress up with, claiming him to be a god. Antoninus Pius would be that person, the child. Hadrian happens to be the individual who is stepping upon the woman in the statue. If you look right there to the left, the portrait was dug up in Turkey and is said to be as old as his reign, thereby indicating that it was commissioned by him. You'd think that wouldn't be a good look for the emperor, but apparently he was only attracted to the sort of women who liked that sort of thing. Then again, he was a flaming homosexual. Why is Hadrian's appearance in the Sibylline Oracles important? Well, let me tell you. For starters, there is the appearance of the phoenix, which we haven't gotten to yet. But then there are all the preterist Tartarian hybrids out there telling me I have it all wrong and that the kingdom of Mashiach was materialized as a physical reality immediately after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. What that typically means is everything we know about history was invented by Jesuits or Benedictine monks afterwards, and I don't jive with that. That even includes the writings of Josephus. Like You can't use the writings of Josephus as evidence that the book of Revelation was fulfilled in the year 60 to 70 or 72, whatever years you go with. You can't use that because even that would be part of the Jesuit and Benedictine uh, deception. The same line of thought leads them to explain uh, how the present-day Jerusalem is not the historical Yerushalayim and that we are looking for it in the wrong location. The deduction, you see, is that Yerushalayim was completely destroyed, and so how can there possibly be a fortified uh, city going by the name in modern Israel if nobody got around to rebuilding it? You see what I mean? Well, I just showed you the presence of Hadrian in the Sibylline Oracles. He existed on the timeline that we're looking at, and it just so happens that Hadrian rebuilt Yerushalayim. Only when he did it, when he rebuilt the city, it went by another name, Alia Capitolina. What a lame title, but whatever. We'll go with it. The name change happens to be one of the ways that he attempted to, quote, abolish all things sacred, unquote, according to the oracle. He wanted to scrub Yerushalayim and its people from his story, with Capitolina indicating the new city was being dedicated to Jupiter Capitolinus, rather than Yahuwah. I am showing you a picture of the Adicula in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Hadrian didn't build that, by the way. Residents of the thousand-year reign dead, or Tartarians if you prefer. On the contrary, Hadrian built a temple dedicated to Jupiter and Venus directly over that tomb, and Jerome tells us so. This is what he says. From the time of Hadrian to the reign of Constantine, a period of about 180 years, the spot which had witnessed the resurrection was occupied by a figure of Jupiter. While on the rock where the crosses stood, a marble statue of Venus was set up by the heathen and became an object of worship. The original persecutors, indeed, supposed that by polluting our holy places, they would deprive us of our faith in the passion and in the resurrection. Even my own Bethlehem, as it now is, that most venerable spot in that whole world of which the psalmist sings, the truth hath sprung out of the earth, was overshadowed by a grove of Tammuz 
that is of Adonis, and in the very cave where the infant Christ had uttered his earliest cry, lamentation was made for the paramour of Venus. Letter 58 to Paulinus III. Normally I would wince at having to sit through one of Jerome's lectures. His mentioning of both the Holy Sepulchre as well as the Basilica of the Nativity in Bethlehem has, has my attention, though. The Sepulchre is, as I've already mentioned, Tartarian, if you prefer that phrase. But then so is the Basilica. Neither are the churches which Constantine built either. They were destroyed at the time when Rome collapsed. A clue. The Basilica was destroyed around 529, right on cue with my Phoenix theory, and then rebuilt before the century was over. We are told it was heavily worked on during the Crusader period. Those additions included two bell towers, which are now, which are now gone, as is the bulk of the artwork. Today, the Basilica is stripped down, considerably simplified from the splendor of the Dark Ages. There is a point to all of this, some of which I've already explained, but I still have a second source to offer. Eusebius was a personal witness to the archaeological dig at the modern sepulchre site, and this is what he says. Accordingly, they brought a quantity of earth from a distance with much labor and covered the entire spot. Then, having raised this to a moderate height, they paved it with stone, concealing the holy cave beneath this massive mound. Then, as though their purpose had been effectually accomplished, they prepared on this foundation a truly dreadful sepulchre of souls by building a gloomy shrine of lifeless idols to the impure spirit whom they call Venus, and offering detestable oblations therein on profane and accursed altars, for they supposed that their object could no otherwise be fully attained than by thus burying the sacred cave beneath these foul pollutions, the life of the blessed Emperor Constantine 26. The context of this passage has to do with Hadrian and his insistence to bury the tomb of Mashiach under a great mound of earth because it was a pilgrimage site of the set apart. Aelia Capitolina was founded in 135, only a hundred or so years after the crucifixion. The location of these monuments to salvation would have been passed down from the fig tree generation, which had officially closed only half a century earlier in the whereabouts of 70 AD. These are the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Yahusha's contemporaries we're talking about who were witnesses to Hadrian's burying of the past. Keep reading then. Eusebius has more to say because he was a personal witness of the unearthing object, of the unearthing project, not object, project. So this is what Eusebius has to say. This also was accomplished without delay, but as soon as the original surface of the ground, we're talking about the tomb again, beneath the covering of earth appeared immediately and contrary to all expectation, the venerable and hallowed monument of our Savior's resurrection was discovered. Then indeed did this most holy cave present a faithful simil similitude of his return to life in that, after lying buried in darkness, it again emerged to light and afforded to all who came to witness the sight a clear and visible proof of the wonders of which that spot had once been the scene, a testimony to the resurrection of the Savior clearer than any voice could give, the life of the blessed Emperor Constantine 27. By the way, the church which Constantine built over the sepulcher was destroyed as well. 
Officially, it was burned by the Persians in 614. Unofficially, though, it's totally Tartarian. In fact, the two places which can be said are Tartarian in modern Israel, hands down, are the Basilica of the Nativity and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The land of Yashrael may have remained a wilderness, as Revelation stated, but Hadrian did exist, according to this timeline shown in the Oracle. Jerusalem was reconstructed, according to the same timeline, and these two sites were outposts for those who wanted to worship Mashiach at the sites of his two births. I mean, his initial birth as a baby and his uh, born-again moment as a resurrected uh, body. It all fits within the timeline. And so continuing what you were waiting for, the Sibylline Oracles and our next Phoenix sighting. I hope you're holding on to something. Then shall the sixth race of the Latin kings end life at last and scepters leave behind. From the same race another king shall reign, who shall rule every land and scepters wield, and having full power, and by the decrees of God most mighty shall his children rule, and of unshaken children in his race. For thus it is decreed while time moves around, when there shall be of Egypt thrice five kings. Thereafter, when the limit of the time of the phoenix shall come around, there shall a race of peoples come to plunder, tribes confused, enemy of who? Enemy of the Hebrews. Then shall Ares go plundering Ares, and he shall himself destroy the haughty threatening of the Romans, for Rome's power perished then while in its bloom. The Oracles, Book 8, 175 through 185. Leaving Hadrian behind us, we come upon a sixth race of Latin kings, beginning with a king who is said to rule every land with a scepter. If I had to guess, our mile marker is Constantine, whose reign began in 306. I probably should have told you earlier that Jerome is best known for his translation of the Bible into Latin, hence the Latin kings. This same Latin king is also said to have children ruling after him by the degrees of by the decrees of Elohim, telling us that the timeline continues on, but not too long, because there is your Phoenix reset event. It coincides with the people who arrived with one specific purpose in mind, to overthrow Rome, a reference to 476 AD. And as you can see, they were enemies of the Hebrews, an altogether separate category from the Latin kings, as far as I'm concerned. Even though the Latin kings were put there by Elohim, and that's true, they weren't the Hebrews. And so, anyways, Rome becomes cinders and ashes because of the phoenix, obviously, and you'll never guess what happens next. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Ready as I'll ever be. After another dozen or two stanzas describing the woes of Rhodes and Thebes, Egypt, Rome, Delos, Samos, and the Persians, all lining up with the dominoes of Rome's destruction, we stumble upon this rather interesting, I should say phenomenally fascinating passage. Later again, thereafter, there shall come an evil to the Persians for their pride, and all their insolence shall come to naught. And then a holy Adonai of all the earth, having raised up the dead, shall wield the scepter unto all ages. The Sibling Oracles, Book 8, 220-225. Seems pretty straightforward, though I'd rather not assume. Would you like me to comment upon it? I can, if you feel a statement is needed. 
the person who rules all the earth is never mentioned by name, but come on. I mean, really, come on. There's, <laughs> there's only one person whom I can think of who has raised the dead. An additional clue is that this same individual will wield the scepter unto all ages. Oh, fine, I'll bite. How many people can you list off on your fingers who fits those two descriptions? You could lop off nine of my fingers and I still wouldn't be in want of the others if naming suspects were all they were good for. My final clue is offered to you by way of artwork. Though I will add a fourth qualifier to his identity based upon what we have already read, he greatly contrasted the Gog Magog people, the Persians, destroyers of Rome, and that he was a friend of the Hebrews. Hmm. Well, wouldn't you like to know what happens afterwards? I would. Continuing without interruption, uh, then saving my commentary for afterwards. So I will pause for a quick drink of uh, coffee. How he shall utterly destroy. Dry land shall bloom together with the leaves, appearing in the heavenly firmament shall bring to light upon the solid rock, rainstorm and flame and much wind on the land, and over all the earth a multitude of poisonous sowings. But with shameless soul shall they again act, fearing not the wrath of God or men, forsaking modesty, longing for and greedy tyrants and violent sinners, false, insatiate, workers of evil, and in nothing true, destroyers of faith on foul speech and false words. They shall have no fill of wealth, but shamelessly will they strip off still more. Under the rule of tyrants, they shall perish. The stars shall all fall forwards in the sea. All one by one, yet shall men see in heaven a brilliant comet, sign of much distress about to come of war and battle strife let me not live when the gay woman reigns but then when heavenly grace shall reign within and when the holy child shall crush with bonds the mischievous destroyer of all men opening the depth to view and suddenly the wooden house shall cover mortals round but when the generation tenth shall be within the house of Hades, afterwards, the mighty sway of one of female sex, and God himself shall increase many evils, when she with royal honor has been crowned, and altogether then an impious age, the sun obscurely looking shines by night, the stars shall leave the sky, and with much storm a hurricane shall desolate the earth, and there shall be a rising of the dead. The running of the lame shall be most swift. The deaf shall hear, the blind shall see, and those that talk uh, not, those that talk not shall talk. And to all shall life and wealth be common. And the land alike for all, divided not by walls or fences, shall bear more abundant fruits. And fountains of sweet wine and white milk and honey it shall give. And judgment of the immortal God, great king. The sibling oracles 8, 235 through 279. Mashiach brings with him judgment, but by which we are told he shall utterly destroy. There are various ways in which this is accomplished, wind being one such method, but the flame is also mentioned, and that speaks of the melted cities which are being discovered across the greater realm. And as I've long since held, I, I feel that that fire, that melting event, the extreme heat happens as a judgment around the 500 AD mark. What is perhaps not so surprising in all of this, though it may throw the romantics for a loop, 
is the rebellion against Mashiach's government even after it is established. Securing a thousand years of rest is indeed a heavy stone to be lifted, considering the bulk of humanity finds righteousness to be repugnant or to be a bore. Eventually, after what appears to be more desolation of the earth, the dead are raised. But then for the remaining mortals, the deaf hear, the blind see, the mute talk, and I would assume the lame walk. Wealth is common to all. Cities of Shalom welcome open borders, and the land is abundant with fruit, as well as fountains of honey, wine, and milk. Really, they don't teach his story like they used to. All right. For sake of time, because I want to keep my video shorter, I'm going to skip this part on the three magi and how that relates to the, the phoenix, according to Clement. I do want to show here these images of the phoenix, which crop up. They crop up during the short season. And I can't help but wonder if there was another Phoenix event yet again uh, at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, maybe even halfway through as well. But at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, which was a sign of, of it coming to its end and the controllers coming, the inheritors coming back into it again. I mean, we see uh, Napoleon and Alexander the First here uh, with the Phoenix. And there, of course, is everybody's favorite president and everybody's also favorite vice president, the CIA director, George H.W. Bush. Behind him there is, well, he's standing in the CIA uh, building, but behind him is the Phoenix as well. Yeah, I think that's it for today. So thank you guys for tuning in to that new information I have on the, the Phoenix and the timeline and why I'm really convicted that... Uh, history did go on for another 500 years. Do I have any more pictures? No, that's it.